Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're going to continue our series with Jeff Verdorn on Who Is This Jesus? Believe it or not, we're at episode number 18, and I thought this was going to be it, but just the way Jeff works, he's managed to squeak another one in. So we're going to at least go through 19 as far as, as far as I know today. And so we're going to today discuss uh, the Jesus as today what we've here's what we've covered we've covered christ in history we've covered christ in the future so we're going to cover christ here and now and maybe that was an awkward way of of starting the show but uh, i think i think people got the point right jeff they did absolutely we are going to we have we've covered christ in the past christ in the future is planned for the end of the age and so these last uh, session or two, or maybe three, uh, 20 is a kind of a nice round number, don't you think? I, I like that too, yeah. And I, yeah, I will admit, I, w- I, I was excited about this, thinking this was conclusion, but I think we got a couple more, a couple more in you, so I'm looking forward to that. I did, especially we got to figure out if we're going to get through this one today. I think we will be able to get through kind of the present Christ ministry within the body, the church. So we're going to talk about the church today, the body of Christ today, and then... Next time, I think we're going to move to the indwelling life of Christ, the current ministry within an individual believer. Okay. Maybe we could do a little uh, review before we move ahead. Sure. So we started this series in the life of Christ, basically looking at Jesus, the eternal Jesus, his role in creation. We looked at Christ in the Old Testament, not only these things called Christophanies or Theophanies, an appearance of Jesus physically in history in the Old Testament. Uh, We looked at the Old Testament prophecies for the first coming of Christ. Um, We looked at his incarnation, his life and his ministry, many of his teachings we looked at, and then of course his the atoning work of Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Then we looked at the future Jesus, the things that God says are yet future, and Jesus's role in those events. So this is generally called eschatology, or the study of end things, or last things. And so the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the groom is going to come back for the bride, and we talked about that. That's called the rapture of the church. There's a future seven-year tribulation. There's a second coming of Christ back to earth. He went up to heaven on the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back to the same spot, and then he's going to rule and reign on earth from Jerusalem for a thousand years on earth. We also looked at Christ's role in the great white throne judgment. That's judgment day. And then we looked briefly at the eternal state, this new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem. And one of my favorite verses is Revelation 21.3. It says, and then the dwelling of God is with man. John, who wrote Revelation, saw this new heaven, saw this new earth, saw this new Jerusalem, but he saw no temple in the new city. And he says, because God and the lamb are 
its temple. We will temple or tabernacle with God and with Christ for all of eternity. Okay, that's that's pretty exciting. It is. So that was past, I mean. We looked at future, and now we're going to turn to the present, the present Christ, the ministry of Christ right here and now. I love it. And great review. And I love that verse in Revelation 21. So thank you for reminding us of that. That's going to be amazing when that day comes. Yeah. It, it, it's, uh, Paul says in Corinthians, the eye is not seen, nor is the ear heard, nor is it entered into the mind of man, the wonders God has in store for us. You know, he only gives us about a chapter uh, of information about that eternal state, but it's, it, Paul describes it as being more than we can even possibly imagine. Sounds about right, Jeff. Jeff Verdorn is my cool. guest. We're continuing our series on who is this Jesus. We're in part 18, and we're talking today about the church. So, I'm looking forward to what what direction you're going to take this, Jeff. Well, let's start with defining the true church. All people, every single person who is born again, who is saved, are members of the true church of Jesus Christ. The church, the ecclesia, the this assembly of the called out ones, the fellowship of the believers, is the church. It's described in Scripture, actually, interestingly, as a body. So both Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians 4 and places like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, that we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all of the other. Now, as a body, everybody needs a head. Well, the head of this body is Christ. Both Ephesians and Colossians declare that he, Christ, is the head of this body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that everything in him might have supremacy. As such, now think about this. Since we are a body, we are not an organization, but an organism, a living Mm. organism. The, The There's no denomination or no individual church building uh, or LLC or 501c3 nonprofit that is the true church of Christ. The true church is the body of Christ comprised of every single believer around the world with Christ as its head. And each believer has a part to play in that body as a whole. I have a longer passage of scripture that describes this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'd like to read it, starting in verse uh, 12 here. Just as, the bo- just as a body, the one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. And even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I'm going to jump down to verse 27. He wraps this up by saying, Now you are the body of Christ 
and each one of you is part of it. Every single believer has a very distinct, specific, and special place in the body of Christ where God has placed you and has uniquely gifted you with a set of spiritual gifts to build up the body to play your role in the body as Christ. Verse 24, God has put the body together. I think we in the body often say, oh, I wish I could preach like Billy Graham. Oh, I wish I could sing like Michael W. Smith or Amy Grant, or, or I wish I could worship like so-and-so. I wish I could evangelize like Luis Palau. I wish I could 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 talk to people like whatever people who go and, and evangelize all over the world. You have a very special part in the body of Christ, whether it's a hand, an eye, an ear, or a big toe <laughs> in <laughs> the body of Christ. We all have our part, and we all have our role. I think I know I what my part we, is now, Jeff. What's your part? I'm at the big toe. You're the big toe. <laughs> <laughs> no, you you have a, a radio program. Yeah, you definitely have a part in God's oh, good. work, in his body, in, no, in his course. part of his body. Of course. A, a reminder yes. we all do. So that's uh, very significant for all of us to be reminded of our, our part that God has for us in his uh, in his church. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I wasn't going to cover the the spiritual gifts. There's many of them: the gift of uh, encouragement, the gift of administration, the gifts of helps, the gifts of giving, the gift of evangelism, the gift of. There's lots of different gifts that the Spirit gives, and uh, and so I think every single believer has been given a unique mix of those gifts to build up the body and to play your part in the body. But as mm-hmm. a body, I want to introduce this concept next, and that is that as a body. We are the continuing incarnation of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus was one man. He walked the earth. He never went more than, say, 100 miles away from his home. I guess he went down to Egypt, but he had a ministry in the Galilee area, and about as far as he traveled was Jerusalem. And he ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, Colossians 3 says. Jesus is not on earth any longer. And yet he told us, his followers in John 14, that truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing and will do even greater works than the things that that they've seen me do because I am going to the Father. Now, I don't think these greater works are things that the church is going to do that are greater in magnitude of what Jesus did. After all, Jesus walked on water. Uh, but but Peter walked on water as well. Jesus raised someone from the dead. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. But so did Paul, actually, in Acts, uh, Acts 20. Paul raised someone from the dead. Now, but Jesus raised himself from the dead. That's kind of hard for us to top, right? I mean, that's uh, he did that. So I don't think we are going to do things in greater magnitude, but in greater scope, if you will. Jesus was one man on earth for and did his ministry for three and a half years. The continuing incarnation of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, is comprised of millions of people throughout the earth over the last 2,000 years. It covers the whole globe, and God has gifted each and every one of them to be their specific part of the whole body 
of Christ, doing his work on earth. That, I believe, is the continuing incarnation of Christ. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's fantastic, and a great way to start, Jeff. So let me take a little break. We're going to come back and continue our study with Jeff Verdorn. Uh, Who is this Jesus? We are in part 18, and we're talking about the church, the body of Christ, the continuing incarnation of Christ through the church body. We'll be right back. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. All right. Did you just climb in your car or maybe just walked into your house, your apartment, wherever you are right now? turning on the radio and thinking, what are they talking about today? And I'm glad you asked because we're talking to Jeff Verdorn. We're continuing our series on who is this Jesus? We are in part 18. Uh, So far, we have covered Christ in history. We've covered Christ in the future. And today we're going to cover Christ here and now, the church. And Jeff, we're off to a splendid start. I really, I remember the first time I heard this phrase that we just discussed, the continuing incarnation of Christ. And I thought, what a beautiful way to represent the church, that we are his presence here on earth. And as the body, we are actually supposed to represent him in all that we do and all that we say. That's why, by the way, that Paul uses the phrase or the picture of ambassadors, right? 2 Corinthians 5 says, we are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So this this, uh, passage, by the way, it gives us a hint at where we're gonna go next as, as to the true mission of the church What is an ambassador's true mission? But I love this picture as ambassadors because we are, as ambassadors, we are from heaven. God says that our citizenship is in heaven, not in this world, but we are first and foremost, I like to say, heavenonians, or maybe maybe I should say heavenites. We're heavenites (laughs) or heavenonians. Either way works. We are, yeah, one of the two. We, our citizenship is in heaven. Our mission is, then, as ambassadors, is to represent the king. We are not supposed to speak what we desire, what we want, what our will says. We're to speak only what the king desires us to speak, what the king wants us to say. That's why Jesus said in John 12, For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. John the Baptist said it this way, I must He must increase, I must decrease. We are representatives of the king, and he wants to make his appeal to the world through us. That's our mission. I think many churches today, now now don't take these criticisms wrong. These are just kind of flavors of what I think some churches um, and why they, 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 can be off mission 
just a little bit. We have kind of the the social justice church. Uh, they're trying to solve all the world's problems and all the world's ills and the social injustices of the world. We have the good works church. They're busy doing good things, but not so much proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. St. Francis of Assisi once famous, famously said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, I contend that the gospel requires words. It requires a proclamation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 9, Paul says, For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach. The gospel requires the communication of the concept of the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the religious church. I think much of Christendom makes Christianity out to be a religion rather than a relationship. Christianity becomes a set of things that we are supposed to do or and a set of things that we are not supposed to do, kind of the do's and the don'ts. And, and Christianity is, is basically becomes a, a set of rules and regulations that are, we, are, we are supposed to follow. I think churches today, especially in the last 10 years, I think there are some churches that have kind of gone woke in the sense that they are more concerned with inclusion and acceptance of everybody instead of salvation and holiness. I think there's some churches that, that gear what I call the political church— they, they're, they're more concerned with the election of certain people uh, than they are with the salvation of men. They, they are concerned with saving our government, if you will, rather than the people underneath the government. Now, now I want to be careful here. Make no mistake. God says that righteousness exalts a nation, and blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. We should promote and vote for religious—I'm sorry, for righteous leaders— that know Christ, know his word, are grounded in biblical principles, have a biblical worldview, we should support people like that. But that's not our mission. I love Proverbs 29. It says, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. We want and should desire righteous people to run our government. But the mission of the church is, is not the salvations of society, but the salvation of men's souls. We actually see this in Israel's history. There were kings who did right in the eyes of the Lord, and there were kings who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I can tell you, Israel prospered when they had kings that did right in the eyes of the Lord. And Israel suffered and was at war often when there are evil kings who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. I think that principle holds firmly today. Mm-hmm. I think another group of churches that that I see in some is kind of what I call the bunkered up church. They, they they feel like, oh, we just need to separate ourselves from this evil world around us. Maybe we could all buy an island or a country or a town or something, and we can all move there and just be separated from the world, and we're going to bunker up with the remnant of God's church, and we're just going to call out the world's sins. And I, I think that the world has always been sinful. I, I, I find it interesting. Why are we surprised when the lost world acts so lost? Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. The lost world is going to be lost. 
sinful people are going to sin. And, and make no mistake, we should call out sin and call sin, sin. The prophet Nathan told King David, you are that man. You are the one who committed this sin. Nehemiah proclaimed to the Jewish leaders in his day, what you are doing is wrong, Nehemiah chapter 5. It's never wrong to stand for biblical principles, biblical values, biblical design, God's design. But I was watching TV. I, sh- I probably shouldn't bring this up, but I was watching TV this week, and Jane Fonda was on a TV show called The View, and she called for the murder of political leaders who are pro-life. That's wrong. The murder. She should be. It is. She called for the murder. Wow of people who are pro-life, specifically politicians. I think there was a couple Congress people that actually referred her name to the FBI for what she said on the TV show, The View. I've got, I've got news for the world. God is a God of life. God is pro-life. Abortion is an abomination to him. If, if when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried up to heaven, what does the sound of 60 million babies being killed in our country since Roe v. Wade. What does that sound like in heaven? So we should absolutely stand up for the unborn and for life and for marriage and gender, sexuality. God's ways are often 180 degrees opposite of man's ways. So we should stand for those things. But you know what? I don't think that's the mission, the primary mission of the church. I think the primary mission of the church is to proclaim Christ, his gospel, to the lost world and to build up his body, making disciples, equipping the saints for the ministry of the church. These things, 2 Timothy 2 says, and these things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. That, I think, is the core mission of the church, to represent Christ in this dark world, to be salt and light, to proclaim the truth, to proclaim the gospel, and not be so interested in some of these other things that we can do and should do, right? I think one of the other kind of churches that misses the the if you will, the, the primary mission of the church. There's a couple more, actually. I think the, the church, some church are more interested in gifts and the gifts of the Spirit than they are the giver of the gifts. Don't focus on the gifts of the Spirit. Focus on the one who gives the gifts to you, or even the program church. I think many, especially larger churches today, are more interested in entertaining the sheep that are in the, in the, the, in the flock than going out and proclaiming Christ to the lost world. I think the core mission of the church is to testify to the truth. When we come back, because I don't have time to read it all, Mm -hmm. I want to read a quote from a guy by the name of Clarence Larkin. He's my favorite old 100-year-old dead guy. We will do that. Jeff Redorn is my guest. Keep the main thing the main thing. We are in our series on Who Is This Jesus? We'll take a short break and be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. It is the Afternoon Show. I am Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to have Jeff Verdorn as my guest today. We're continuing our series on Who is This Jesus? You can believe we're on part 18 already. We've covered a lot of ground. We covered Christ in history. We covered Christ in the future. And today we are talking about uh, Christ here and now with the church. And what is the mission of the church? Jeff, you did a wonderful job of uh, talking about some of the distractions the church has today. But I think your uh, your author buddy Clarence Larkin gives a wonderful synopsis of the mission of the church. I think you're going to read that for us, aren't you? I am. It's a little longer quote than normal, but it's so good, and I think it's so accurate, and it describes the church today as well as it did the church over 100 years ago now when he wrote this. So let me start. As we have seen, the church is not an organization, but an organism. Therefore, it is not a social club organized and supported solely for the benefit of its members. It is not a place of amusement to pander to the carnal nature of man. It is not a house of merchandise for the sale of indulgences or other commodities whereby the money of the ungodly can can secure to save the church members a little self-sacrifice. Neither is it a reform bureau to save the bodies of men. The reformation of men is very commendable, as are all forms of social service, but that is not the work or mission of the church. The world was just as full, if not fuller, of the evils that afflicted society today in the days of Christ. But he never, nor did the apostles, organize any reform agencies. He knew that the source of all the evils in the world is sin, and the only way to eradicate sin is to regenerate the human heart. And so he gave the world the gospel. The mission of the church today is to carry the gospel to the whole world, Mark 16, 15. The gospel is not a system of ethics or a code of morals. It is a proclamation of salvation. Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. The purpose of the gospel in this dispensation is not to save society, but to save the individual members that are to compose the body of Christ, the church. As soon as the church enters into an alliance with the world and seeks the help of parliaments, congresses, legislatures, federation, and reform societies, largely largely made up of ungodly men and women, she loses her spiritual power and becomes helpless as a redeeming force. Clarence Larkin, 1906. Wow, that's powerful, Jeff. Thank you for reading that, and that was uh, amazing. It just describes like it was written last week. I mean, the church is being distracted by all of the same things today that it was 100 years ago. Yeah, nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. So our mission, I think, is clear. God says to preach the gospel. Always be prepared to give an account for the hope that you have. 2 Corinthians 5 outlines it this way. Paul says, we try to persuade others, verse 11, that Christ's love is what compels us, verse 14, that we are not supposed to live for ourselves but for him, verse 15, 
that Christ has given us a ministry of reconciliation. There's our ministry right there, verse 16. And therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors as God was making his appeal through us. We are to be active in sharing our faith, Philemon says. And, and of course, Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are to let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. So what was Jesus's mission when he came? If we're going to understand the mission for the church, why don't we look to Jesus and see what his mission was? Well, Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus said he came to, quote, seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to testify to the truth. Remember Jesus before Pilate in John uh, John 18, he says, he says, you are a king then, Pilate says. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the very reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. So Jesus came to save the lost, to testify to the truth. And when he called his disciples, he said, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, do you fish, Bill? I do not. Yeah, I I do. I'm not a real serious fisherman, but I love to go fish, and I, I always take a trip or two a year and go fishing. But I know a couple of serious fishermen, and there's actually a lot of preparation that goes into fishing to increase your chances of success. But at the same time, you can put a worm on a hook and put it into the water and catch a fish. There are actually many similarities between fishing for fish and what Jesus said was fishing for men. First, you need to go where the fish are. <laughs> so this whole idea that we were talking about earlier of the church that wants to bunker itself up and separate it from the world. No, 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 no. You have to go where the fish are. Second, you have to pre prepare all your equipment. You have to get it all ready. Now, you can have the most expensive bass boat on the lake and all the latest gear, and all the latest electronic gadgets, but there's no guarantees that you're going to catch any fish. In fact, that's why they call it fishing and not catching, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Yeah. In the same way, you can have all the best strategies from your church, and but there's no guarantees of success. Sometimes a simple worm on a hook works best. Hmm. Now, in context of when Jesus said this in Matthew 4, he would have been referring to fishing with a net. So the picture is kind of simple. A fisherman would throw his net out into the water, right, and hope that he would catch a bunch of fish. Jesus is asking his disciples to be fishers of men. He's asking them to cast the net, the gospel message, out into the world in hopes that we capture men's hearts. That's the mission of the church, to capture people's hearts so that they might believe and be saved because Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, the Gentile. In fact, Jesus's last command was go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go out into the world. You got to go where the fish are. You got to go where the people are. And as one of my good fast pastor friends of mine says, he says, Christ's last command should be our first concern. 
we should be fishers of men. That is the mission of the church. Amen to that, Jeff Verdorn. Now, sometimes when we're fishing, our nets will get damaged. They'll get torn. We have to come back together. And we actually see this in Scripture where the disciples were mending their nets. And we come back together to mend our nets, to to prepare to go back out into the world. We tend to get beat up when we go out into the world, right? I mean, that's why Paul uses the imagery uh, several times, actually, of, of, of Christians being soldiers. We are soldiers fighting the fight of truth out in this world, but we come back together to, to straighten out our armor and polish it up and to sharpen our sword again and to get ready to go back out into the world. That's our mission. That is what the body of Christ is for. So we come together once a week at church and we encourage one another. We build each other up. Uh, we, we fix our nets so that we can go back out again. We sharpen our swords so that we can go fight the fight of faith again. And, and that's the model of, of church. I think our churches, I think we spend too much time focusing on the flock and making sure everybody is happy and pleased and entertained or whatever, instead of saying, hey, we need to equip ourselves to go out and do the ministry of the church. It's kind of an inward focus versus an outward focus. The key word, I think, in that great commission in Matthew 28 is go. Go. Mm-hmm. And that, by the way, is the model of the early church. You know, I, I've, I've done an Acts series at my church before, and I love this, that in the book of Acts, there are seven great speeches in Acts. And it starts in Acts chapter 2, uh, where Peter is speaking to the crowd at Pentecost. Remember, the Holy Spirit had just all come upon them. And a large crowd of Jews were gathered, and they were all amazed at what was going on. Actually, they weren't all amazed. Some thought they had had too much wine and that they were drunk in the middle of the day. But Peter spoke to them, and he said, You put to death by nailing him to the cross, this Jesus. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. That's the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And verse 41 said that gospel needs to be accepted. You need to believe, and then you'll be saved. Acts 3, the next chapter, Peter heals a a beggar, and people are amazed once again. And in his speech to that crowd, he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, the gospel. Stephen to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 gives a long speech an entire history of Israel, basically. But then he says, you killed the righteous one, and before he can get to the resurrection, they kill him. They stone him. Peter at Cornelius' house in chapter 10 is one of my favorite stories. Peter has to receive a vision, actually, from God to convince him to go into a Gentile's house and preach to them because a good Jew wouldn't have done that. But he goes in and preaches And he says that they killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that there's one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead, and all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And Cornelius, this Gentile, and his family believe, and so they're baptized 
and they are saved, and they receive the same Holy Spirit that the disciples received back at Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 11, he goes and tells the other disciples, you won't believe what just happened. I preached the gospel to these Gentiles, and they received the same Spirit that we received. Acts 13, Paul at the synagogue uh, gives this long speech again on Israel's history, and he says that God raised Christ from the dead. And then he says, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Salvation is by faith. And he proclaims the gospel. Acts 17, the sixth speech, is in, in Athens. I've actually been here. It's a very, very cool spot. Paul was preaching the resurrection of Christ, and uh, people heard him. And some of the leaders and, and elders of the town said, hey, we, we, we want to hear this guy. Bring him up to us. And he's brought up to this place called Mars Hill. And Paul says that, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And these wise men looked at Paul. He goes, he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. What is this babbler talking about? But you know what others said? Others wanted to hear him more. And that is always our response when we preach Christ. Many will scoff and scorn and sneer and think of you as a babbler, but some will want to hear more. Finally, Paul and Agrippa in Acts 26, he's got, again, Paul gives this long speech to Agrippa, culminating in verse 23, where he says the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead, the gospel message. What do all these great speeches have in common? The central theme of all of these speeches is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What Paul in 1 Corinthians describes is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day, and he appeared to many. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that the early church was primarily concerned with. Yeah, Jeff, that's awesome. And I'm one of those guys that wants to hear more. So I think we'll wait till after the break to hear more. Jeff Redorn is my guest. We're continuing our series on Who Is This Jesus? We are in part 18. A couple more parts to go, according to uh, Jeff's calculations. So we'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. The way they keep on telling me time and time again, boy, you never win. You never win. But the voice of truth I think I'll always connect that song to my friend Jeff Fredorn because that is his walk-up music and we are continuing our study which has been now in its 18th episode called Who Is This Jesus? And we are studying today on the the here and now of Christ in the church. So Jeff, let's let's take it home. Yeah, so we just walked through the seven great speeches of Acts and we saw that 
there, there's a pattern going on here. The early church, that's what they were concerned with. That was their primary message, was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Paul, in, in all of his letters, actually, he says he, he preached in the synagogues. He proclaimed the word of God. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, Acts 19.8, he says he spoke boldly and he preached and taught. Uh, Paul, it says of Paul, Paul became all things to all people so that he might save some. He reasoned with them, as was his practice. He went into the synagogues every Sabbath to reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ uh, and what he did. And yet, as practiced as Paul was and as bold as Paul was in the early church, he says in Ephesians 19, 6.19, Paul says, pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will prove fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might declare it fearlessly as I should. Isn't it, I find it amazing that Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him that he might proclaim it when, when that's all he did. That was his mission. That was Paul's mission. And I, I think of us today. What keeps us today from from proclaiming Christ to the lost world. And I, I think the two main reasons are, one, I think it's fear, fear of rejection. Uh, I think it's fear of, of, of knowledge or a lack of knowledge. I think, well, what if they ask me something that I won't be able to answer? What if they say, well, how can a good God allow evil in this world? Well, you know, a little preparation can go a long way. A little understanding of God's word can go a long way. And so we need to be equipped, always be prepared to give an account for the hope that we have and to give biblical answers to some of these tough questions. We actually have really good answers to all of these tough questions from Scripture. Yeah, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We do. The other, the other one is I think people don't feel worthy enough. And I think it's a misunderstanding of who we are in Christ. But they say, well, God has called me to live this holy life, and I look at my life, and I, I'm falling short. And By the way, join, join the club. We all are. The only one who lived a perfect and holy life on this earth was Christ himself, who knew no sin. And so he was qualified to become sin for us or to become a sin offering for us. The rest of us, even after we are born again, you're going to fall short. Nobody lives out this Christian faith perfectly except for Christ. You have been qualified. You are worthy. You are an ambassador. You have been made holy and blameless in his sight, and you are qualified to go out and represent Christ to the world by preaching the gospel. I also know it's hard and I think this might be the third reason people don't. And that is because when you put your hand out and offer it to people, sometimes it, it, it gets slapped. Sometimes you get bit. When, when we go out in this world and we represent Christ, Jesus himself said, we will be persecuted. He said that the world hated him first, and so it will hate us also. And so when we preach the gospel— 
um, we're going to be persecuted. That's why God says, let your light shine before men, because we know that we, when we're young in the faith, we, we, maybe we let our light shine a little bit and people start mocking us and persecuting us and belittling us. Oh, you're not going to become one of those Jesus freaks now, are you? And what do we do? We shrink back. Mm-hmm. We withdraw. We hide our lamp under the basket so that we don't get persecuted. But the disciples, when they got persecuted, uh, in Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5, and going back to Acts again, uh, Peter and John were actually arrested, and they were told, don't preach in this name anymore. And they said, judge for yourself whether it's right in God's sight to listen to you rather than God, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. That was, by the way, the, a good example of the first century mission program. We couldn't cop, stop speaking. Yeah. You know, you just take your hands away from their mouths and they couldn't help but speak about what they'd seen and heard. What had they seen? They'd seen the Christ. They heard his teaching. <laughs> they saw his yeah. death and his burial and his resurrection. And they couldn't stop speaking about it. But then in Acts 5, the disciples are all arrested again. And they said, we gave you strict orders, you people, not to teach in this name anymore. And Peter says, shall we obey God or men? The God of our ancestors raised Jesus Christ from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand and as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance for the forgiveness of the sins. And they wanted to kill them right then and there. And if it wasn't for a Pharisee named Gamil, they would have died right then. But he said, if this is from man, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop it. And so the Pharisees ordered them flogged anyway. And they ordered him again not to preach in the name of Jesus. And they released them. And I, for one, am very thankful that they did not stop preaching about the name of Jesus. In fact, the apostles, verse uh, chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Christ. I mean... <laughs> it's amazing, Jeff. Is that it, us it today? Is. Well, you know, there are, mis- there are people all over the world being tortured and punished and dying for the sake of the gospel. I, I want to say that it's it's one person dies for their faith every five minutes in the world. Hmm. Wow. One every five minutes. Is, is mm-hmm. the Church of Christ being persecuted around the world? You know, we've had it pretty easy in this country. In the United States of America, we've had a history of, of biblical-principled government uh, where Christianity was free to thrive. Um, I think you have to be uh, hiding under a rock to not recognize that's changing even in the United States of America right now, today. And mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't want to be fear-mongering, but we have the potential uh, in this country to start experiencing more and more persecution. Um, and, I, and I think we are, not to the extent that the world is, but around the world for 2,000 years, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Church of Christ has been persecuted. That is the world. Yeah, you start by calling it hate speech. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just saw an article about a young man in Canada uh, who was at a religious school, and he was 
in a discussion trying to defend uh, God's design for man and woman and genders. He got suspended, kicked out of school. He showed up the next day and said, well, you know, I'm going to school. You can't kick me out because of my views. And they arrested him. The police came and arrested the young man. And uh, I saw him interviewed. And it's, yeah, it's that bad. He was arrested in Canada for basically saying, I believe that God designed one man and one woman. And that is now hate speech in Canada. Mm-hmm. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The brighter that you let your light shine in this world, the more the world is going to hate you. Jesus said, the world hates you. Keep in mind that it hated me first, for if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Don't be surprised, Christian, when the world hates you. Many won't like your message. That's not our job to save people. Our job is just to proclaim. God saves. But remember, some will hear the message and believe and be saved. Yeah, fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much. I've loved part 18, and I'm looking forward to part 19 and possible 20. Thank you for this teaching and this time of what's going on in the church. I loved it, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you Thursday for Guide Talk. How about that? Absolutely. God bless, Bill. We'll talk soon. All right. Jeff Redorn's been my guest. And if you've missed any of today's program, I'm pretty sure you're going to want to go hear it from the beginning or hear it a second time. You can go to MyFaithRadio.com in the afternoon with Bill's show page. That's our show for today. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.